You're listening to the sermon podcast of Brockport First Baptist. We are a progressive American Baptist congregation located about 20 minutes outside of Rochester, New York. To learn more about our church and support our ministries, please visit BrockportFirstBaptist.org. Hey everyone, this is Pastor Dan. We had a little mishap with the recording of uh, this past Sunday's church service. It actually didn't get recorded. So I am here on Monday afternoon, very sunny and yet snowy day, in my office uh, to try to re-record the sermon that I preached yesterday, or some version of it. The passage we're looking at is Jonah chapter 3, verses 1 to 10, which I will now read to you from the New Revised Standard Version. The word of the Lord came to Jonah a second time, saying, Get up, go to Nineveh, that great city. And proclaim to it the message that I tell you. So Jonah set out and went to Nineveh according to the word of the Lord. Now Nineveh was an exceedingly large city, a three days walk across. Jonah began to go into the city, going a day's walk. And he cried out, Forty days more, and Nineveh shall be overthrown. And the people of Nineveh believed in God. They proclaimed a fast, and everyone, great and small, put on sackcloth. When the news reached the king of Nineveh, he rose up from his throne, removed his robe, covered himself with sackcloth, and sat in ashes. Then he had a proclamation made in Nineveh. By the decree of the king and his nobles, no human being or animal, no herd or flock shall taste anything. They shall not feed, nor shall they drink water. Human beings and animals shall be covered with sackcloth, and they shall cry mightily to God. All shall turn from their evil ways and from the violence that is in their hands. Who knows? God may relent and change his mind. He may turn from his fierce anger so that we do not perish. When God saw what they did, how they turned from their evil ways, God changed his mind about the calamity that he had said he would bring upon them, and he did not do it. So this sermon is going to basically be sort of a journey through this text. So if you have a Bible near you, you might want to open up to, jo- to the book of Jonah, chapter 3. Um, or if you're online, you might want to pull up um, something like Bible Gateway or something like that where you can read the Bible online. Um, or you can just listen and follow along. It shouldn't be too tough um, to follow the flow of where we're going. Now, this sermon is titled, Worst Prophet Ever. That's kind of what I file this uh, story under, and hopefully as we dig into it, uh, it'll be clear why that is. So, Jonah chapter 3 starts out, The word of the Lord came to Jonah a second time, saying, Get up, go to Nineveh, that great city, and proclaim to it the message that I tell you. Now, this should sound familiar. If you've been following along in Jonah, um, if you've been at the church uh, recent weeks as we've gone through this story, or if you've got in and read Jonah on your own recently, you should see a parallel here to Jonah 1, verse 1, the opening line of the book. It's very, very similar to this opening line of chapter 3. I'm just going to read Jonah 1, uh, verses 1 and 2. Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah, son of Amittai, saying, Go at once to Nineveh, that great city, and cry out against it, for their wickedness has come up before me. The parallel here between the opening of chapters 1 and chapter 3 is really strong with some very important differences. 
This time around, the intensity is much more targeted at Jonah. He gets three commands. Get up, go to Nineveh, proclaim the message that I tell you. Do what I tell you to do. God has to make it really clear because the last time God told Jonah to go to Nineveh, he got on a boat and sailed in the opposite direction. So there's a harshness to God's tone here in chapter 3, but that harshness is aimed at Jonah. Meanwhile, God's tone toward the Ninevites has softened considerably. There's no mention this time around of the wickedness of the Ninevites that that came up before God in chapter 1. That line was there, uh, but now in chapter 3, it's gone. We don't know why that line's missing in chapter 3. I'm speculating at this point. It's always a little presumptuous when you're reading between the lines of the Bible to try to understand God's motivation. I realize that. But I think we could probably safely presume that Nineveh is still just as wicked at this point in the story as they were back in chapter 1. So why does God's tone soften? Maybe, and again I'm speculating, maybe God has seen how much Jonah hates these people. How Jonah himself is rooting for Nineveh's destruction. Because remember, the Ninevites, they're the people who destroyed Jonah's people. Nineveh is the capital of Assyria. Assyria destroyed Israel. Jonah is an Israelite. So maybe God has seen Jonah's hatred for these people. And maybe that's making God recoil a bit. Maybe God is already beginning to change his mind about the Ninevites just from seeing Jonah's attitude. We don't know. I'm speculating, but I think it's a possibility. And I do know that the idea of God softening or God changing God's mind probably makes a lot of us uncomfortable. So let's just set that aside for a second. We're going to circle back to that because that question is going to become super relevant in a few verses. But for now, let's just kind of keep going and see where the story goes. So Jonah gets his command from God. He gets up. He brushes off the fish vomit because remember at this point in the story, we're right after the fish puked Jonah up on the shore. That's quite a visual. (laughs) And Jonah goes to Nineveh. Unless we think that Jonah has like actually had a change of heart about these people, he proceeds to give the lamest, most half-hearted prophecy that has ever been delivered. Verse 3. Now Nineveh was an exceedingly large city, a three days walk across. Jonah began to go into the city, going a day's walk. Do you catch that discrepancy there? It's really subtle. If you're, if you're just like cruising through Jonah, you're going to miss it. But it's really important. Nineveh is a three days walk across, and Jonah goes a day's walk. Yeah. So unless he's sprinting, Jonah's only covered about a third of the city. And this grand prophecy of Jonah to the Ninevites, it's eight words in English, depending on your translation. Um, Five words in the Hebrew. I prefer the Hebrew version. It's very direct. Forty more days, Nineveh falls. Forty more days, Nineveh falls. Which I think we could say is a bit vague. Uh, There's a lot missing from a prophecy like that. There's no mention of repentance. 
There's no explanation for why Nineveh is going to fall in 40 more days. There's no mention of God or justice or sin. No call to repent and turn from their evil ways. Just 40 more days, Nineveh falls. Jonah is doing the bare minimum here. He might have gone to Nineveh, but he's not trying very hard to turn the hearts of the Ninevites toward God. And the response to this half-hearted prophecy, the people of Nineveh believed God. They proclaimed a fast, and everyone great and small put on sackcloth. When the news reached the king of Nineveh, he rose from his throne, removed his robe, covered himself with sackcloth, and sat in ashes. Then he had a proclamation made in Nineveh by the decree of the king and his nobles. No human being or animal, no herd or flock shall taste anything. They shall not feed, nor shall they drink water. Human beings and animals alike shall be covered with sackcloth, and they shall cry mightily to God. All shall turn from their evil ways and from the violence that is in their hands. Total repentance. Which is kind of hilarious, right? When we, when we started out this sermon series, we identified some, some kind of like key guideposts for reading Jonah. And one of them is that this book is really funny. It's loaded with irony and absurdity and exaggeration. And that really comes through here in this chapter. This is probably the single biggest depiction of mass repentance, mass conversion in the entire Bible, and it comes in response to the most half-hearted prophecy imaginable. And the joke is on Jonah. The, the king declares that animals are going to fast. Animals. Herds of cattle that graze freely in the open fields will, will neither eat nor drink. Which kind of brings to mind a very funny visual of like these repentant people wearing nothing but sackcloth with ashes smeared on their face, running around frantically trying to keep cows from grazing. It's really kind of funny. It's, it's a little slapsticky. So if you're not really into that, it might not, might not get much out of you. But this, this is a funny story. And then the animals, the flocks and the herds are going to wear sackcloth. Now remember... <clears throat> Sackcloth, we've talked about this previous weeks, is this scratchy material that's made out of either um, unrefined wool or goat's hair. So the flocks, the sheep and the goats, are going to wear goat's hair. Where's the rim shot on that one? That's pretty good. This is funny stuff, especially in the first millennium BC. It might not be as funny today, but... Back in the day, this was hilarious. And again, Jonah here is the butt of the joke. Despite his best efforts to the contrary, the people of Nineveh have repented and turned to God. Then in verse 9, the king of Nineveh utters what is probably the most theologically profound statement in the entire book of Jonah. Who knows? Who knows? God may relent and change his mind. He may turn from his fierce anger so that we do not perish. Who knows? The king acknowledges that he doesn't know the mind of God. 
He doesn't even know God, right? He doesn't know Jonah's God. He certainly doesn't know God's will. So who knows? Maybe this God isn't like our gods. Maybe this God isn't vengeful and angry and stuck in his ways. Maybe if we change, if we turn, if we repent, then maybe God will change course as well and have mercy on us. Who knows? This is very similar to the attitude of the sailors who were on the boat with Jonah back in chapter 1 when he was fleeing the opposite direction uh, from Nineveh toward Tarshish. These, again, kind of like the king, these are pagan sailors. These are sailors who don't know Jonah's God. And yet they also acknowledge that God is free to do as God chooses. In chapter 1, verse 6, this is when the storm comes and Jonah's asleep in in the bottom of the ship. The captain of the ship goes down and wakes him up, and he says this, What are you doing sound asleep? Get up! Call on your God. Perhaps your God will spare us a thought so that we do not perish. And then again in verse verse, uh, 14 of chapter 1, this is when the sailors are about to throw Jonah off the ship, and they cry out to Jonah's God. Please, O Lord, we pray, do not let us perish on account of this man's life. Do not make us guilty of innocent blood, for you, O Lord, have done as it pleased you. Who knows? These pagan sailors and the evil king of Nineveh both acknowledge that God is free to do as God pleases. Now contrast that with Jonah, the prophet of God, right? The the spiritual insider, as we might call him. Jonah who thinks he knows God's heart. Jonah knows exactly what God should do. God should destroy the Ninevites. Because that's what they deserve. These are the bad guys. And God is a God who punishes bad guys and rewards good guys. So God should crush the Ninevites just like they crushed Jonah's people. Jonah is after revenge. And he thinks his God is a God of vengeance. And Jonah is dead wrong. Back in chapter 3, verse 10. When God saw what the Ninevites did, how they turned from their evil ways, God changed his mind about the calamity that he had planned for them, and he did not do it. God changed his mind. Which is problematic enough, but uh, the literal translation from the Hebrew would be God repented. God repented from the destruction he had planned for the Ninevites. Maybe a little bit more problematic. I guess depends on your theology. But here in this passage, God repents. God turns from the punishment he had in store for this evil city, and God decides to show mercy. God changes his mind. Now, a lot of us have a hard enough time when politicians change their mind, right? We don't like it when the people who are in charge change their mind. We're really going to struggle with the notion that God changes God's mind. And that's because, if we're honest, I think a lot of us see change as a sign of weakness. 
If something changes, then it either changes for the better or the worse, right? So if God changes his mind, he was either wrong before or he's wrong now. Either way, we've got a problem. Now, this whole problem, this whole uh, hesitation we have around the notion of God changing God's mind, this is something that Christians picked up from Greek philosophy. We kind of uh, inherited it from people like Aristotle and Plato and all those folks. And unfortunately for us, the Greeks didn't read much of the Bible because in the Bible, God changes his mind all the time. In Genesis, God decides to destroy the city of Sodom. But Abraham haggles with God and convinces God to spare the city if he can find at least 10 good people there. At Mount Sinai, God decides to destroy the Israelites after they make the golden calf. But Moses intercedes and God changes his mind. Prophets like Amos, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, whoever wrote Jonah, they proclaim oracles of destruction with the caveat that God will change his mind if the people repent. Change is not a sign of weakness. It's a sign of freedom. It's a reminder that God is free to do whatever God pleases, even if it messes with our theology. Now, there are times in the Bible where it says that God doesn't change, but those verses are almost always in relation to God's love, God's justice, and God's faithfulness. And whenever God does change his mind in Scripture, it's always in the direction of love and mercy and forgiveness, grace. Jonah's idea of God doesn't make room for grace. It's very dualistic, very black and white, Good guys and bad guys, reward and punishment. That's how Jonah sees God. But the other characters in the story, the characters who ironically don't know God, as far as we know, they acknowledge the possibility of grace and the fact that no one can know the mind of God. Who knows? Two simple words that come together to form one powerful acknowledgement of God's freedom. God's freedom to forgive. God's freedom to rescue. Even God's freedom to change. Who knows reflects hope. It's an acknowledgement that God's way is better than our way. Who knows that this is the really tricky part? Who knows is a relinquishing of control from us to God? When we've blown it and there is nothing we can possibly do to make things right, who knows? When our hearts are broken and all hope is lost, who knows? When the relationship is over, when the diagnosis isn't what we had hoped for, when we see a loved one continue down a dark and destructive path, who knows, who knows, who knows?
when God saw what they did, how they turned from their evil ways, God changed his mind about the calamity that he had planned for them, and he did not do it. Let's pray. God, we thank you for being a God of hope, a God of freedom. We ask for you to help us to come to grips with the implications of that freedom. Help us to embody the love and the mercy that you've displayed in our lives every day. Thank you, God, for being a God of hope, a God of rescue, and a God of who knows. Amen. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed what you heard, please be sure to rate, review, and subscribe to this podcast on iTunes. You can connect with us on Facebook at Brockport First Baptist, on Twitter at BrockportFB, and on our website, BrockportFirstBaptist.org. Our theme music was composed by Scott Holmes. This has been a production of Brockport First Baptist.